I enjoy the Peloton. I don't do it often, but I'm competitive. I like to win. I like to finish in the top 10% when I'm exercising. I love the product. I don't like the stock. Hey, thanks for joining us today for this episode of The Capitalist Investor. I'm Mark Tepper. I've got Derek Gabrielson with me. Good morning, Mark. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing just fine. What we're going to be talking about today is IPOs. There is so much hype surrounding IPOs. Typically, from my perspective, they end up being all bark, no bite. Absolutely. This isn't a common request I get. You tell me your experience in working with your clients, but I don't have a lot of clients reaching out to me interested in the flavor of the week IPO, but I do have a few. In the last five years, I don't think I've gotten one. That's good. Mm-hmm. Last year, I had some people interested in Pinterest and Uber, Lyft, you know, a few of these different IPOs. And my take on IPOs is for the retail investor, for anyone out there trying to trade the markets or invest in the markets, you know, and, and just make a good buck, you need to be cognizant of the fact that these IPOs are boomer bust. They tend to be high risk. They tend to be overvalued. And you need to make sure that if you're going to invest in them, you you fit them in that speculative sleeve of your portfolio. If a standard stock position for us makes up, let's just say, 3% of our strategy, a speculative position might get a 1% position, right? We don't speculate. So these IPOs typically have not been a good fit for any of our strategies. And and I think it makes sense for us to kind of go through and talk about them. Yeah. They're definitely not checking off the boxes that we like to make sure we check when we're creating a a long-term strategy. Right. So again, you've got management team, you've got growth story, you've got valuation. The biggest issue with these IPOs is that third checkbox. A lot of them have good management teams. You know, we could argue back and forth about Adam Newman and we work, you know, whether or not he, you know, was a good CEO. He got ousted anyways. The growth story is typically amazing. That's what excites investors about these IPOs is the growth story is cool. They're intrigued. You know, you're sick and tired of trying to find a yellow cab phone number, right? <laughs> so you pull out your phone and you, you grab an Uber. Like that was a travel disruptor. Right. You remember trying to catch a a taxi cab, you know, back when we're going out and stuff like that. It was impossible to find. It was super expensive. These apps just completely changed how that worked. They did. Yeah. So the growth story is typically really cool. The valuation is what crushes us when it comes to these IPOs. They're always overvalued. Right. And you can never get in at the IPO price. Yes. (laughs) So you're usually paying a big premium to get in early. Yeah. And we'll go through some of those examples in a few minutes. But when we talk about valuation, I want to be crystal clear that my issue with, with IPOs and their valuation is not necessarily... You know, this last, I don't know, the last 10 or so IPOs from that rolled out in 2019, just they weren't very good from a return standpoint. They might all be amazing companies one day, but from a return standpoint, investors did not do very well. And the issue I have with valuations is really the valuation in the private market. So when these companies were private, they were overvalued. And then the board thinks they're going to take them public and improve that valuation even more. Because historically, there was a liquidity premium applied to companies. So what does that mean? That means that 
if you were a publicly traded stock where an investor could liquidate their shares right now and turn the shares into cash or vice versa, your stock would trade at a higher multiple than a privately held business where you have to go through a long M&A process to extract any capital from that company. That has changed. So D, if you look at the multiples on the the S&P 500, and what we're looking here, folks, is EV to EBITDA multiples, trailing 12 months. So EV is enterprise value divided by EBITDA. That's a cash flow metric that is earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. Most investment banking firms tend to focus on that because it's a better representation of cash flow. Yep. There's less fudging the numbers as it relates to depreciating assets, amortizing, and stuff like that. That is the number. Yep. So when you look at these multiples, so from the 90s all the way until the Great Recession, you can see the S&P 500. And, and folks, I'll grab a screenshot of this and I'll throw this in the show notes so that you can take a look at it. But from you know the mid 90s until the Great Recession in you know, 2007, 8, 9, and in that area, the S&P 500 traded at a premium from a multiple standpoint to private equity. You know, we're talking a 50 plus percent premium. And then what happened after the Great Recession is suddenly they started to trade more in line, right? The multiples were almost the same until 2014 when private equity multiples really broke out. And private equity multiples right now are about 50% higher than the S&P 500's multiple. Yeah, you're looking at around a about a 17.4 multiple for private equity versus about uh, 11.8 on the S&P 500. It's almost a 50% difference. Yeah, that's, right? that's significant. From my perspective, that's the issue with these IPOs. They're valued in the private market at a 17 multiple. And then suddenly they become public. They want to trade at a 25 multiple. <laughs> but what happens over time is they're going to go back to that 11.8. So, you know, I think that's one of the biggest issues with these IPOs and their pricing. This is really the result of decades of portfolio asset allocation changes. You've probably seen the commercials. I forget if it was ING or Voya. I don't see them anymore, but I saw these commercials years ago where it basically said the 60-40 portfolio is dead. Now it's 50-30-20, right? So the 60-40 portfolio is your old traditional 60% in stocks, 40% in bonds. What has happened since the Great Recession is investors have begun to embrace alternative assets, Assets that don't correlate directly with stocks, assets that don't correlate directly with bonds, they come to embrace alternative assets. So the new recommendation, right? And I'm not saying it's our recommendation. This is just, you know, your cookie cutter stuff that you can you get from Google is rather than 60, 40, you go 50, 30, 20. So 50% in stocks, 30% in bonds, 20% in alternatives. Alternatives, that's where private equity would fit. Right. So all of a sudden, this wasn't even an asset class, right? It, it, it wasn't an asset class that, that investors would truly embrace and invest in. And then almost overnight, there was a legitimate sleeve open in your portfolio 
for you to begin to move money into these alternative asset classes. So, I mean, when you look at just the flow of funds and, and where money has gone, it has definitely flowed into these alternatives, right? And, and I'm not saying private equity is the only alternative. There's real estate and several other options there as well. The big function of that too is what has happened to interest rates. In that 60-40 portfolio, the 40 in the bonds would help prop up a portfolio. Yep. Right? I mean, just think about before uh, the 2008 crash, probably a, a nice mutual fund, a bond mutual fund was probably throwing off 6 7% in, in interest, right? Yeah. That helps out a portfolio. Yeah. <laughs> hey, well, bond performance over the last 30 plus years, it's been a tailwind. Mm-hmm. It's helped portfolio oh, yeah, performance. That'll probably be a headwind over the next 30 years. Mm-hmm. And now we're getting 2% from the same asset class. That, that's not going to help the returns of the, the portfolio. So the idea of bringing in these alternative asset classes uh, was really attractive to a lot of people. Yes. Now, I don't have this in front of me, so I'm going to ballpark this. I saw a study on asset allocation across endowments, you know, endowments, institutions, like the big money, not us trading our 401k dollars, (laughs) right? Like the big, big, big money. If you go back to like 20 years, you go back to like 2000 alternatives on the institutional side. Now, the retail investor side, it was it probably made up 0% of someone's portfolio. But on the institutional side, alternatives were about 20% of the overall asset allocation for these institutions and endowments in 2000. Today, in 2020, it's like 50%. So it's gone from a 20% allocation to a 50% allocation over the course of the last 20 years, which is, again, why more money has been flowing into these private equity kind of deals, which has you know inflated that multiple. The one other thing that that we're looking at here is uh, the number of companies listed on U.S. exchanges versus private capital assets under management. You know, what you can see here is you go back to like, you know, right before 2000, probably at the peak of the tech bubble, Mm -hmm. 8,800 publicly traded companies. Today, it's more like 5,000, 5,500. So there's fewer publicly traded companies today. Private companies, uh, as far as private capital assets under management in billions. We've gone from 500 to 5826. That's crazy growth, right? So a lot more capital has flown into these private alternatives. And the vehicles to get into those types of investments have obviously increased dramatically as well. Back in 2000, an average investor really had no chance to, exactly. to get into something like that. Yep. And now those opportunities do exist. Mm-hmm. Question is, do you want to hop into them? So let's let's kind of go through and let's just talk about some of these, you know, quote unquote, unbelievable IPOs from 2019. <laughs> and let's just, you know, let's lay it on the line and, and talk reality here. So D, you mentioned this, so and, and why don't you go into a little more detail here, but IPO price versus the first trade price. For anyone who's listening to this podcast, they're never going to get in at the IPO price. We don't even get in at the IPO price. Our clients don't get in at the IPO price, right? right? So wh- why don't you talk a little bit about that, and then we'll kind of go from there, and we'll go through some examples of, of specific companies. So I think one of the the most interesting stories from the last year or so was definitely Beyond Meat. So have you ever had any of this? I'm not interested, dude. <laughs> I'm not interested. I follow a paleo diet, so it's all meat, veggies, fish for me, fruit, right? I have no interest in a fake meat burger. Yeah. To be honest with you, I haven't even tried one yet. People seem to think it's comparable to an, an actual burger. Uh, I don't see it. 
there doesn't seem to be much of a health benefit to there is no health benefit so it still seems not the best for you it seems like the only reason anyone would give up meat and switch to the the plant-based meat would be because they didn't like the slaughtering of animals Right. right from a health standpoint they are no healthier than just eating a regular burger i mean you look at the nutritional facts you know beyond meat there's probably one of those companies impossible as well mm-hmm. which is still private where there's enough interest and intrigue that people might eat it once or twice just to see what it's all about but the question is do they continue to eat that and do they continue to give up real meat right you know michael simon the chef a big uh, figure here in cleveland he has a, a burger place in town. And that's when I first heard about this. Uh, it was the Impossible Burger. So I was intrigued. You know, I heard him talking on on one of his shows. Hey, you know, this, this sounds pretty cool. Maybe I'll, I'll check into it. But, you know, when I show up to Michael Simon's place, I'm ordering a, a big old ju- juicy burger. I'm not, I'm not, yeah. I'm not getting the, the fake one. But, you know, kind of back to the topic here. The IPO price, which basically no one gets, was $25. If you wanted to go into your, your TD Ameritrade account, right when that started trading, the first trade was $46. That's if your order gets filled. You could enter it and it might not get filled for two hours. And and that was what was going on, especially in the first couple hours of trading. So you can hit the buy button, but there wasn't enough uh, basically shares to fill that order. So the price just kept going up and up and up. And and basically went all the way up. I believe it was almost $240 at, at the high. Yep. And then it came back down. And then it came crashing back down. So this is really the one success story, I would say, for the IPOs. It's up 64% from that first trade of $46, but it is down 68% from the high. Uh, I believe it's trading around a buck and a quarter, something like that, $125 right now. Yeah, which is still up from its trade at the end of 2019, Mm -hmm. right? I think some retail investors get duped into these because they look at the return from the IPO price. Right. Right. So look, look at the difference here. The return from Beyond Meat's IPO price. And this was really the only winner in 2019. Through the end of 2019, up 202%, but your return from the first trade plus 64%. Right. Now, look, I'll take 64% <laughs> any day of the week. Right. But there's a big difference there. It's more important to look at the return potential from the first trade or even be a little more realistic and look at where the thing was trading maybe two hours after it began trading, right? Because right? it's going to take a while for your order to get filled. But look at the rest of these companies that are all down from their first trade. Fiverr International. I can go onto Fiverr and give someone five bucks and, and they'll write me a Google review or something like that, right? Like just ridiculous. I don't know how they're in business. Uh, Slack Technologies down 42% from their first trade. Pinterest had some clients interested in that, down 22% from its first trade. Now, all these numbers are through the end of 2019. We don't have them current as of today. Um, Lyft down 51%. Hopping over to Uber, down 29%. Now, do you remember what happened with Uber? Lyft IPO'd first, right? Mm -hmm. The stock came crashing down. So then Uber had to reduce their IPO price. So that's probably without digging deeper into it. It's not saying Uber's a better company than Lyft. Just Lyft happened to IPO uh, and begin trading, you know, at a much higher price. And then Uber kind of, you know, learned their lesson that they had to reduce their IPO price in order to, to unload their shares. Zoom video and Peloton through the end of the year were positive to five each. Peloton is really pitching themselves as a software company. But I kind of look at them as is like Apple. 
you have to have that install base, mm-hmm. right? So Apple has to sell a thousand dollar iPhone in order for them to then leverage that iPhone to sell AirPods, the watch services, you know, whether it's Apple Music, Apple TV, right? They can't do any of that stuff unless they sold the iPhone first. Mm-hmm. I view Peloton as the same way. They can't sell, the, I think their subscription's like 30 bucks a month or something. Yeah. I actually, we have one at home. My wife uses it more than I do, but I think it's like 30 bucks a month for the subscription, but you got to buy the $2,000 bike first. Right. So they're still a hardware company, you know, and they're trying to position themselves as a software company because software companies get higher multiples. Well, and what's your take on Peloton? And I think they're, aren't they coming out with, maybe it's out already. Do they have a treadmill type of uh, um, setup as well? I think Peloton, uh, you have one. I have one. It's not like the commercial though. I bought it for myself, but now my wife uses it more. My wife bought it for herself and uh, I hurt my arm a a year or two ago. So I started using it. It's addictive. It's a great product. It it is. I mean, I I find myself, I don't do it often. I might do it once, twice a month, you know, just to to give the rest of my body a rest. But when I do it, I find myself competing. I want to finish in the top 10%. Yep, absolutely. Like, so it's it's cool because if you're working out by yourself, you're really going to push yourself that hard. No, it's hard to do. Yeah. So, I mean, it really is a cool concept. But the question is, is it a hardware company? Is it a software company? Right. It's more of an Apple. They need to sell the hardware. So, you know, not everyone can afford a $2,000 bike. Not right. everyone can afford the $30 subscription as well. Right. And, you know, Apple kind of experienced this a couple of years ago when the cost of an iPhone crossed over a thousand bucks. And I was on TV talking about this before it happened. I said, people are willing to pay more until they're not. Right. At at some point, people aren't going to pay a thousand bucks for a phone. Right. And I don't know about you, D, but me, my phones, they last. I try to get two to three years out of them anymore because like, you know, the technology isn't changing that quickly. So, you know, I try to get two to three years out of them. But what Apple ended up doing is they had to start financing the sale of their iPhones. Mm a hundred bucks a month, you know, for a year, right? So that they could open up that market. You know, so that's probably something Peloton's going to have to consider if they're not already doing it. I have no idea if they're doing it yet, but some sort of a financing program. They do have that. Do they? Yep. You can roll the the cost of the bike over with the subscription over a period of time. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that'll probably make it a little more easy for a normal user to actually have access to the bike in the system. But so look, I mean, just to kind of recap what we've talked about here. IPOs get a lot of excitement, a lot of hype. And I think what we are trying to communicate here is the performance really has not been great for IPOs. You know, and I think the main takeaways for our listeners would be probably the biggest issue is you're not going to get in at the IPO price. Okay. So you're already at a disadvantage. The second issue is these companies are overvalued in the private market. If they want to go public, they almost have to like be okay with a reduced valuation. You're going to see these multiples come down, right? I mean, it's already happening. D, you tell me what your thoughts are, but I think what we're trying to communicate is just don't get suckered in to one of these flavor of the week IPOs. They tend to not be the best investments to hold in your portfolio. These are all great topics to talk about. But at the end of the day, all these things kind of filter back down to the same questions that you have to ask yourself. You see the excitement on TV. They're great companies. You may even use the product, but does it fit in your portfolio? What's their story? What's their management team? Uh, What's their valuation? That's really what we're talking about at the end of the day. Um, Is it a good company at a good price? Yeah. That, that's really what you have to, to focus on. And we keep saying it, does it fit into your overall strategy? 
does that stock fit into your portfolio strategy? Exactly. And if it doesn't fit, don't square peg round hole it. Don't cram (laughs) it into your portfolio just because you might love your Peloton bike. There is a big difference between loving a company's product and loving the company's stock. I enjoy the Peloton. I don't do it often, but I'm competitive. I like to win. I like to finish in the top 10% when I'm exercising. I love the product. I don't like the stock where it's currently priced. Same thing with Tesla. I'd buy a Model S. I think it's a good looking car. It'd have to be a commuter car in the Midwest because you don't have access to the, the charging stations like you might in other states. But I can't get behind the valuation on the stock. Keep that in mind. Just because you love a product doesn't mean you, ha- you have to love the stock, right? You know, Do your own research and analysis on, on the stock, independent of whether or not you like the product. The product is, is one of the three things. It's basically the growth story, right. right? You still need to like the management team and you need to like the price. So, hey, that wraps everything up for today. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of The Capitalist Investor. Shoot us an email if you have questions, concerns, uh, thoughts, anything you want to debate us on. Uh, info at at swpconnect.com. That's info at swpconnect.com. Thanks for tuning in once again, and uh, we will see you next time.